0: My mission is simple, to make you money. I'm here to level the playing field for all investors. There's always a bull market somewhere, and I promise to help you find it. Mad Money starts now. Hey, I'm Kramer. Welcome to Mad Money. Welcome to Kramer. Other people want to make friends, I'm just trying to make us some money. My job is not just to educate, but to teach and put it in context. So call me at 1-800-743-CBC or tweet me at Jim Kramer. If you want to understand this market on a day where the Dow gained 156 points, well, it has to be vaulted 1.07%, and the Nasdaq wore 1.71%. Wow. Let me ask you a question. How much would you be willing to pay per month for the best entertainment out there? The answer? More than you're currently paying. And that's why when Netflix raised its fees this morning, it ignited the entire stock market. And even the unnerving news from the U.K., where the prime minister's Brexit deal went down in flames, wasn't enough to stop this rally. Yet this morning's Netflix announcement that they're raising their U.S. subscription fees by, 18, by 13 to 18% is huge. Now, according to RBC Capital, a terrific piece of instant research titled Flexing Pricing Muscles, we know that Netflix was generating about $11.44 per sub on a base of 57 million customers in the third quarter. Now, if you slap a 15% increase on the average revenue per customer, get this, you get an extra $1.18 billion in incremental revenues, and all that flows straight to the bottom line because Netflix doesn't need to lift a finger to get more money. Wow! Instant riches! So even though Netflix had already seen the stock surge 25% just since the beginning of 2019, the stock tacked on another 6.5% today. The darn thing is now up more than 50% from its December lows. And why not? All the research we got this morning shows that there won't be much pushback here. Netflix has been underpricing its streaming service for ages in order to hook subscribers on terrific content. They know that if people try it, they will get addicted. Even after this price increase, Netflix is only going to be charging a little bit more than some of the other paid services that really have a lot less content. I'm thinking about HBO. I'm thinking about Hulu. How do we know these higher prices will stick? Well, again, we go back to the research. Consider this insight from Piper Jaffray report this morning. We believe the primary determinant in the ability to raise prices subscription perception subscriber perception of content quality. In November of 2018, we surveyed more than 1,100 subscribers and found that 71% of them feel Netflix content has improved in the last year. We believe as long as the vast majority of subs perceive that the service is improving, Netflix will be positioned to periodically raise prices, end quote. In short, everyone knows that Netflix provides a great service that represents incredible value. Ah, uh, if they can get away with raising prices, and they will, well, it's just a huge boost to the bottom line. Now, it's great for Netflix, but why did this positive action end up boosting the rest of the market? What was the deal with the pin action? All right, for starters, Netflix is the N in FANG, my acronym for Facebook, Amazon, Apple, Netflix, and Google. Now Alphabet, because of the peculiar abundance of ETFs linked to FANG, there are ten of them. Any move in Netflix can move the entire cohort, and that's exactly what happened today. Is the ETF lifted? ETS lifted the whole FANG complex. I know it seems crazy. I mean, come on, that the idea that the tail could wag the dog like this. But it's true, you can't underestimate the power of ETFs to move certain groups, even ones with gigantic market caps. Second, Netflix serves as a powerful reminder that the subscriber business model is incredibly strong here. A recurring service revenue stream is very, very lucrative. Which brings us to two other bargains, two companies with service revenue streams that could easily get away with raising their prices, Amazon and Apple. Amazon Prime may be the single greatest bargain on earth. I pay 119 bucks a year for Prime. If they told me I have to pay $150 for the privilege of getting the lowest prices for products, not to mention free shipping, you know what? I wouldn't even blink. I'd say, fine. I mean, fine. I don't care. I mean, that's how great it is. Prime is worth it. Last year, Amazon put through a 20% price increase. And while we don't know how many people dropped the service in response, we do know that Amazon hit 100 million subs not long after, which makes me believe that there was little or no resistance. That's one of the many reasons why I think Amazon's stock is a lot less expensive than it seems. On top of Prime, they've also got that red-hot web services division and a rapidly growing advertising biz. Put it all together, I'm a big fan of Amazon here at 1600. It's large largest position from my chapel trust. The only thing that may be more of a bargain than Amazon Prime, the stock of Apple. Which sells for measly 11 times earnings estimates, despite its fabulous, rapidly growing service stream. Every month I pay Apple to back up my phones, uh, my photos, insure my phones. How about you? Don't you? I mean, every month I pay Apple Music, it just comes in. I, 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 like many subscribers, I don't pay any attention to the bill. They come uh, from Sender, my email, to Sender Apple, and they're automatically charged to my Amex account. If Apple were to put through a price increase on any of these services, I'd feel compelled to keep paying for it. What else are you going to do? All this stuff is a bargain. You never need to worry about losing your pictures. You can get your music on any device, and you don't get that panic attack when your wife, I'm, when my wife, throws my dirty garden pants in the washing machine with the iPhone 7 still in my left pocket. What are you doing? That's what I said. And she goes, well, you know what? Well, don't worry, we're going to put the phone in a bag of rice. A bag of rice. Yeah, Uncle Ben's rice is going to save my $800 phone. I got, I got, I got an idea for you. Apple Care is more reliable. Now, there's been a lot of complaining about Apple lately. All I hear about is the fact that they had to cut production on the new iPhone. I heard that about 40 times. Nobody's talking about what happens when they raise the price for these services. I think the stock would explode higher. Oh, and there's something else Apple could do to get its mojo back. But if you want to hear that, you're going to have to keep watching. That's called a tease in the business. Now, Fang also got a boost today from Facebook. As two research firms are now saying that the estimates could be too low. How do you like that? Barclays today directly saying the average are good. Oh, and an analyst at Citigroup is now telling us that he's going all in fang. That's the smaller version, than the one with just 1A, uh, Amazon, which added yet more fuel to the fire. Now, I don't want to miss the forest of the trees here. We had a number of companies that reported quarters today that reminded us just how cheap stocks have become. So cheap that it's very difficult for a company to disappoint. That's the takeaway. I want you to talk. Uh, let's talk about JP Morgan for a second. Largest bank. When I reported this morning, the stock quickly fell more than three bucks. Why? Because the headline numbers were clear misses. But the stock ended up turning around. And anyone who sold it down three bucks now feels like a first class moron for not listening to JP Morgan's incredibly upbeat conference call before they pulled the trigger. Then there's an even better one. Health. All right, while UNH delivered robust numbers, for some reason they were initially viewed as suboptimal. Stock got shelled in pre-market trading, at one point shedding more than 4 bucks. However, if you waited for the conference call, which I always urge you to do, you would have heard that every line item was much better than expected, especially Optum. That's their data business. Turns out UNH is doing incredibly well, even as the stock had been one of the worst performers in the managed care space. Uh, the result? Another blast off. UNH closing up more than 3%. Hey, by the way, after the Bell United Continental shock buttoned the airline cohort by crushing the revenue estimates, can you imagine if the transports caught a bit tomorrow? Now, you could argue that the British Parliament overwhelming rejection of Theresa May's Brexit deal should have done a lot more damage than it did. Oh, even though it's so boring, the Dow did dip almost uh, into the red on the news. But anyone who has been paying attention knew that the Brexit deal was dead on arrival. So it was not like this was an unexpected development. The bottom line, what matters right now are the expectations, and so far they're being exceeded by both by the companies reporting earnings and the likes of Netflix that are raising their prices because there's no resistance to doing so. That is all positive in a market where people are still negative, so negative that it staggers the mind. Mark in South Carolina, Mark. Hello, Mr. Kramer. Yeah, what's happening? Well, you
1: know, I'm I'm considering a position in precious metals. It seems to be a possible investment there in the, today's world of the volatile, the political, the Fed financial direction, mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. uncertainty with the interest rates, huge debts, dollar direction, and I'm with all you. these uncertainty. What's right. your thoughts of, of, of wheat and precious metals in that precious metal sector?
0: You know, it's interesting. Uh, it's a streaming company. I have told the, I have said that we want to buy, though, that I've identified my favorite, which is this combination that's G-O-L-D. Uh, and that's Mark Bristow, and he's been on the show so often. It's now called Barrett Gold, but it is, and it yields, too. It's got the same, same kind of yield. It's a really good situation. Let's go to Damien in California. Damien! Booyah, Jim! Booyah. Hey, I'm sorry about your Eagles. Yeah, yeah. I just want to thank you for your wreck a while ago on White Wave Foods. I did really <laughs> well on that one. Yeah, that was a good one, wasn't it? That was an action alert name. Yeah, which brings me to another organics powerhouse. I have a large position in Hain Celestial, but the stock has just been hammered the last 12 months. What is your thoughts on Hain getting back to its former self? There's been the change of the C-suite, along with the activist investor on the board now, but the last quarter had decreasing sales and margins. No, Do they know listen, nothing? you got that right. That quarter was not good. I can't find a reason to own the stock. I think they'll take out premiums over. I think, frankly, their season may be, might have ended, too. Let's go to Vincent New Jersey. Vincent. Hey, Jim. Big booyah from another Heartbroken Eagles fan out there. Uh, I have a question for you about TD Bank stock. It's currently at
1: $52 with a P.E. of about $11. it has been floating around 50 to 60 bucks all last year. Yeah, Earnings coming out this week on all the banks. J.P. Morgan missing
0: big. The Fed turning back their rate. Do you think TD Bank is still a good play, even though they're – uh, not reporting until March? I think you're making it too hard for yourself. I think what you do is you just go buy uh, City, which is really cheap, even up three, and I like it. And thank you for the condolences. Uh, you know, I tried not to focus on the Eagles because I watched it with my daughter, my wife, and uh, we all comfort each other, and I'm trying to get past it, and I'm not past it yet. Uh, but you know what? Thank you for all the kind words about how much it hurt. All right? Now, I know you expected the doubt. We should never have been there. I'm thrilled about us. You know, I know you should never expect the Dow to get rocked today, right? It should have been rocked. I mean, the market was really ugly. But expectations matter. And right now, they are being exceeded. And the stocks are so low that they can't seem to disappoint. On Mad tonight, the smoke has finally cleared. And we've entered a new, more positive environment. But could the new year bring new volatility? we got to go up the charts to find out. And last week, Apple's Tim Cook told me the greatest contributor, uh, contribution that his company due to mankind is in the health business. Tonight, I'm consulting on the case for free and telling the tech titan how to make a big splash in the healthcare space. If they do it, I am not asking for anything. And we've got royalty on the set. No, not Prince Harry. VMware. I'm sitting down with the Cloud King to see what's ahead for the company. So stay with Kramer.
1: Don't miss a second of Mad Money. Follow at Jim Kramer on Twitter. Have a question? Tweet Kramer. Hashtag mad tweets. Send Jim an email to madmoney at CNBC.com or give us a call at 1 800 743 CNBC. Miss something? Head to madmoney.cnBC.com.
0: What's up, everybody? I'm Graham Bunn, so excited to introduce you to Country Shine, where we're talking all things country music. That's right, and I'm Cameron Irwin, co-host and resident country girl at Tinseltown, here to welcome you to the family. Every Tuesday, we'll update you on the latest in country music, culture, and community. And on Fridays, I'll bring on country musicians and all the biggest names in the game. It's a gathering, and we want you here. You can listen to Country Shine with me, Graham Bunn, for free right here on Spotify. Now that the smoke has cleared and we've entered a new, more positive environment, it's time to take stock of which tools work during the sell-off and which ones didn't behave as expected. So tonight we're going off the charts with the help of Mark Sebastian. He's a brilliant technician who's the founder of OptionPit.com as well as being my colleague at RealMoney.com where I blog to get a better sense of what's been happening with the CBOE volatility index, or the VIX for short. Now historically the VIX has been pretty darn good at helping us call the bottom and the top. Another name for the volatility index is the fear gauge. and In a normal environment, it tends to have an inverse correlation to the market. Meaning it goes up when the S&P 500 goes down, and it goes down when the S&P goes up. When you reach important levels where the averages may be ready to change their trajectory, the VIX starts to behave differently. Normally when stocks go down, but the VIX also goes down, indicating that traders are less afraid. Hey, that means a bottom may be at hand. However, you know what? What's incredible is the pattern didn't quite play out as expected during the sell-off. Maybe that's why it was so hard to fathom. Sebastian says the fourth quarter decline was different from anything else we've seen in the last decade. Since 2008, when the stock market experienced a major sell-off, that's always been accompanied by a huge spike in the VIX. Then when the sell-off has had its next leg lower, the VIX makes a lower high itself, and that's how we get a bottom. But t- take a look at these pair of charts, the S&P 500 with the volatility index over the course of 2018. In February and March, we got exactly the kind of action Sebastian's describing. When the S&P plunged, the VIX popped s plunges, VIX popped. Then when the stock market plunged again, second leg, okay, and made a lower high, well, that, 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 the VIX made a lower high. So in other words, this goes down and VIX does not exceed what it was. That's what we're looking for to call a bottom. At that, and that exactly turned out to be the bottom. Uh, a, a, the fear gauge told you that even as stocks were getting hammered, the level of panic was receding. This time, it's this, it, 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 The pattern played out, out differently. Now, take a look at this. This is really fascinating. Sure, when the S&P started plummeting in October, all right, so October, the VIX spiked. That should happen. Then we fell some more. OK, still good. Uh, and the VIX spiked back to the same levels. So far, so good. It's very normal. But then over the course of November, Sebastian points out that the S&P 500 collapsed. And the volatility index barely seemed to notice. Normally, when the stock market goes lower and the VIX does nothing, that's supposed to signal that we reached the bottom. Historically, this has been a very reliable signal. And we did get a nice rally, okay, uh, at the end of November, but that was a sucker's rally; it didn't last. When well, the next chart we see that come December, the S and P started breaking down yet again, totally falling off cliff. And at least initially, there was zero fear in the in the index. This is really tough here. In fact, the VIX couldn't get any lift at all until the S&P 500 sold off 400 points. Even then, when the VIX started surging in December, as the whole stock market seemed to be collapsing, the volatility index failed to spike above 40. That's lower than where the VIX peaked in January. Now, if you're only looking at the fear gauge, it seemed to be saying that the garden variety sell-off at the beginning of last year was worse than the total meltdown at the end of last year. How wrong was that? So what changed? Okay, why does Sebastian think the volatility index failed, failed to capture the tremendous amount of fear and panic during the fourth quarter bear market? Simple. Sebastian says that all these inverse VIX products like the Velocity Shares, Daily Inverse VIX Short, Term Exchange, Trade Note, the XIV, they blew up. Remember, we used to profile this all the time. The XIV was a retail instrument that took on insurance risk from the general marketplace. If you remember back in February, several of these VIX related products imploded. And looking back, Sebastian says this process represents a sea change in how volatility is going to work going forward. The crazy price action from a year ago left a bad taste in traders' mouths. Going into 2018, you had tons of money managers who were using VIX options to hedge their positions. But now it looks like many of these traders simply took their ball and went home. So in this new environment, hedge funds will no longer be racing to cover their short positions, which means that the VIX is probably going to signal that there's less volatility going forward. Now, does that mean that the volatility index has become useless to us? Sebastian says no. And the charts from late last year seem to bear this out. When the S&P 500 bottomed right around Christmas, then exploded higher, look at what the VIX was doing. It got crushed. That makes sense. That makes sense there. Even on the first trading day of 2019, when we got a decent sell-off in the S&P, the VIX did nothing. In fact, as the stock market has surged back to life over the last few weeks, Sebastian notes that the VIX has been falling much faster than the S&P has been rallying. That tells us something very, very important. I want you to take a look at this next pair of charts. The first is the volatility index. Get that clean. First is the volatility index. Uh, and the second is the VVIX, the CBOE VIX volatility index, which measures the volatility of the VIX itself. The VIX peaked on uh, at 110 on December uh, 24th. Okay, so take a look at this. This is where it peaked, and since then it's moved straight down. In fact, while the VIX was making a new high on Christmas Eve, the Vivix was not. And to Sebastian, this all looks like the unwinding of the risk off trade. As VIX and SP 500 call option buyers, both back away from the hedging at the same time. Remember, the VIX works by measuring the implied volatility of these options. So when Sebastian looks at these charts, he thinks listed hedges are being unwound at a much faster rate than the S&P 500's rally. So what does that, all of this mean? So I don't want it to be mumbo-jumbo, because when I was back and forth with Mark, he really was able to say this was the end, okay? This was the bottom. Sebastian thinks it signals that this earnings season may be a bit of a snoozer. With a bullish bias as the market gradually pushes higher over the next few months. The bottom line, the charts as interpreted by Mark Sebastian, suggest that the volatility index may not be working exactly like it used to. Doesn't mean it's useless. And based on the current action here, he thinks the stock market has more room to run. And even though I'm a little kind of flummoxed that the VIX really didn't work, I agree with Sebastian. I think you we go higher. There's much more mad money yet. Apple has big plans for the healthcare space in 2019, but instead of waiting for the next announcement, I'm offering the company an idea of my own. Then VMware may be driving autos, retail, and healthcare to greater heights, but can the cloud play also drive your portfolio higher? And I'm getting real in retail and breaking down what's really happening in the space. So stay with Kramer. Drop in. Watch free. Last week, we learned an awful lot about Apple, the company now everybody loves to hate. When we sat down with CEO Tim Cook at his Cupertino headquarters, there's one part of that interview that struck it just really just stuck with me. It's when he talked about Apple's ambitions in the healthcare space. Listen to this. If you zoom out into the future, and you
1: look back, and you ask the question, what was Apple's
0: greatest contribution to mankind? It will be about health. All right, they have all these apps on the Apple Watch. I use them. You can monitor a ton of things, monitor your health, put your medical records on this, on the iPhone. Put it all together, and this stuff represents a major democratization of healthcare. I want you to keep that term in mind: democratization. But of course, Apple has a problem here. As much as we might love the service revenue stream created by all these apps, including the healthcare ones, most investors treat Apple like it's some kind of hardware company and doesn't get credit for all these great things, like the health thing that I love and loading my data right now. Uh, and, and you know what? They think that the hardware is kind of on the verge of becoming obsolete. They see the slowdown in the iPhone sales and assume that Apple's about to go the way of, I don't know, Polaroid? The Walkman? The Palm Pilot? No, I think these melodramatic obituaries are very premature, but they highlight the core issue here. Apple is too reliant on iPhone sales. The iPhone accounted for 63% of the company's revenue last year. Now, if the iPhone is indeed slowing, everybody's writing Apple off, which is why this stock sells for just 11 times next year's earnings estimates. Regular viewers know that I, think of, I, I what I think about this. I mean, I own it, don't trade it, Apple's the greatest consumer products company on Earth, and that service revenue stream represents the future of the company. They have a massive install base, 1.4 billion users, a huge captive market that they can sell all kinds of apps and services to. However, you know what? The stock indeed has been a dog here, because the service business is just a tiny fraction, right now at least, of iPhone sales, not because it isn't big, but because iPhone sales were so large. All right, so we I got to thinking about this because it's really bugging the heck out of me. I kept thinking, what can Apple do to get out of this rut? I think it's time, it's time for them to make a big splashy acquisition. Tim Cook did not rule the idea really of do, doing a big acquisition, but they got to do it in the software space. The idea here is that this would make the service revenue stream a larger piece of the pie. But you know, look, that's what would end up. I mean, our main goal is to improve the healthcare experience. Perhaps more important, it would force investors and analysts to reevaluate Apple as more than just a hardware company. I would love it to be switched to the consumer product group or software group. Now, when I put my investment banking hat on, and I never did, you know, it's really sales and trading. But the answer seems obvious. I've got it. Apple should acquire Epic. Systems. That's a privately held provider of electronic health records. Not only would this deal be good for the company, I think it's exactly what Apple stock needs to get its mojo back because it'd be buying the best of them. Why Epic? Okay, first you need to understand something about the electronic health records market. For years, we've been hearing about all the amazing things that can happen when doctors and hospitals move from their old-fashioned paper record systems and embrace the digital future, right? In theory, electronic records should be a a, a lot more efficient. And best of all, they should be able to speak with each other. So if your primary care doctor notes that you have an allergy to penicillin, every other doctor who treats you should easily be able to see that information. In theory. In theory. Another there are a bunch of players in this space. Epic's one of them, but you also got Cerner and Theatre Health at Allscripts. Some of them have a strong position in hospitals. Some of them cater to specialized private practices. However, at this point, two players have emerged as the dominant contenders, Epic and Cerner. While Cerner's all about big healthcare systems, Epic focuses on smaller hospitals, larger physician practices. The issue here, though, is that the electronic health records, boy, have they ever failed to live up to the hype. It should be revolutionizing the way we practice medicine, but that's just not happening. Why not? The problem is what's known as information blocking or data interoperability. Now, when your information is siloed across multiple different platforms, the Cerner network, the Epic network, the Allscripts network, you end up with a situation where your records don't get shared the way they should be. Say your doctor uses Epic, but you get into an accident and you're taking to a hospital uses Cerner. They might not be able to pull your records. Probably can't. And currently, no one in the industry has a reason to solve this problem. Neither Cerner nor Epic wants to make it easier for their systems to work together because then their clients would have an easier time switching to a competitor. Enter Apple HealthCare. See, uh, we know they've already started dipping their toes into electronic health records. Uh, they, this space is important. I mean, you're going to roll out a service that will allow anyone with an iPhone to view their own labs, charts, immunizations, and more if they link up with any participating hospital. So far, it seems to be pretty popular with patients. If electronic health records are ever going to achieve their full potential, you need something to act as a universal repository for all this data. And the iPhone and Apple could easily do it. It's a gigantic opportunity. Maybe one of the largest total addressable markets out there. But if Apple wants to become the universal electronic health records provider, to be the handshake between, say, the watch's data and the system, they're going to need to break into this market big. And the best way to do that is by acquiring the best. Epic. Why them and not the other guys? First and foremost, they're going to want a player with scale, which means either CERN or Epic. Second, Epic has the best mousetrap. Isn't that Apple's way? They've been named number one software suite by Class Research for eight years in a row. There's no reason Apple should go with an inferior provider. That's not their style. They might as well be buying the best of breed. They can certainly afford it, and the best of breed is Epic. Third, integrating Epic would be a simpler process than integrating, say, Cerner. Epic has always been privately held. They've built their whole system from the ground up. No acquisitions. That means if Apple buys them, there will be some degree of consistency during the integration process. Now, I have no idea whether Epic wants to be able to be a seller. I don't know. Or Apple wants to be a buyer. But Apple has $123 billion in net cash as of last September, which means they can certainly afford it. Frankly, Apple could buy anything. So what, So would Epic sell? All right, Why? Then, listen to me on this. Epic, and again, this is a private company. Epic's founder and CEO is Judy Faulkner. She owns 43% of the company, and she's now 75 years old. In the past, she very matter-of-factly uh, said that Epic was not going to do an IPO. Now, if she wants to retire with a bag, selling her company to Apple would be a good way to do it especially because a deal like this one could potentially be revolutionary for the healthcare sector. She wants to do that, and so does Tim. Sooner or later, somebody is going to do this. I'd much rather have Apple take control of our health records than any other gigantic tech company. Apple actually cares about protecting your privacy. They would go to the end of the earth to do so. The customer is that important. They're the perfect fit. Bottom line, with iPhone sales slowing, Apple needs to do something to jumpstart its stock price and the service revenue stream. I think a big acquisition that bolsters its service business would do the job. And buying Epic Systems to double down on healthcare and give the handshake between this and all of the healthcare system, well, I think buying Epic could do it. So come on, Tim Cook and Judy Faulkner. Make this one happen. Let's go to Don in Massachusetts. Don. Hey, Jim. How are you doing? Don, I am doing well. How about you? I'm doing great. Thanks. Uh, Jim, as you know, uh, Teladoc
1: symbol T-Doc provides telehealth, telehealth services worldwide. There are a total of 12,000-plus clients in 125-plus countries. Forty percent of Fortune 500 mm-hmm. companies participate in this service. They are also involved with 35-plus health right. plans and 290-plus hospitals and health systems. Starting in 2017 and into 2018, Teladoc acquired growing and innovative right. businesses. Right. Subscriptions make up most of total revenues with this segment growing 60% since last year. Total, total sales are expected to skyrocket to $1.1 mm-hmm. billion. Uh, look, I, years I, years. I
0: agree with you, sir. I mean, I've got to tell you, I think Teledoc is too cheap. As part of the broader sell-off we had in the market, they didn't report to the end of February. But I think Teladoc is a buy. How about Cynthia Massachusetts? Please, Cynthia.
1: Hi, Jim. My question is about the Aetna-CVS merge, mm-hmm. and um, I owned Aetna, now I own CVS and some cash due to the merge, and I'm wondering, number one, about the merging court issue. And number two, if I should hold, sell, or invest
0: more. Okay, I have a conference call on Thursday for members of the ActionLarsPlus.com Club, Thursday at 1130, and I'm going to be talking about CVS. I think this has now become one of the cheapest stocks in the entire market. It is down again today. This time it was Walgreens that has a... uh, I mean, the Walmart's having a fight with them. They're going up against Walgreens. They're going up against everybody because they bought this Aetna, and they gave a very not great presentation recently that really made people feel like Wait a second. Numbers have to come down. I am telling you, I've never seen CBS this cheap. I would love to buy more of it for my trust. we bought a ton at this level. This is one that you want to buy tomorrow after people cut numbers, because it could be six cents what happened when they announced this the Walmart thing. I I am a huge believer in Larry Merlot. I urge Larry Merlot to come on air and talk about this combination, CBS and my right. Apple's got ambitions in the healthcare space. We know that. That's some of the things we learn when we are in San Francisco. And the company, well, let's say the stock's in a rut. I don't think the company is. I think it should make a big acquisition. I think it should buy the privately held Epic Systems to own the medical records business. Much more money than including my exclusive with VMware. How is the company positioning itself against the competitors? Then I am breaking down what's really happening with retail, telling you if winners still exist in the space. And all your calls rapid fire in tonight's edition of the Lightning Round. So stay with... Kramer. For the first nine months of 2018, the cloud stocks rocketed higher. The whole group was very much in style on the Wall Street fashion show. Then in the fourth quarter, we got a rude awakening. As investors started worrying about a slowing economy, they dumped everything related to the cloud. And, and, And the group got crushed. Now that the Federal Reserve has backed off its plans to aggressively raise interest rates this year, something that would strangle the life out of this economy, the cloud names have been rebounding. Take VMware, the company that pioneered the virtualization software that makes data centers so powerful, which is why they've now become a major cloud infrastructure play. If there were really a slowdown in cloud spending, VMware would be one of the first companies to know about it. But when the company reported in November, wow, the results were excellent. Now, that didn't stop the stock from getting obliterated last month, although it bounced pretty dramatically off its lows since the beginning of 2019. So can this thing keep climbing? Let's take a closer look with Sanjay Putin He's VMware's chief operating officer, customer operations. Get a better sense of how his company's doing and where the industry is headed. Mr. Putin welcome back to May of Money. How are you, sir? Sanjay, have a Great. seat. Great. Thank oh, you for... I
2: like that T-shirt. You liked our little designer shirt yes. just for your show?
0: I particularly like it because if you add back the dividend that you got for VMware, you are the number one cloud king. So congratulations.
2: Well, we focus on the long term. It's nice that, obviously, people recognize part of the the story of the stock price that's done very well the last two years. But we're, you know, the two things that are very special about this company is we focus on innovation, uh, disruptive innovation, and customers. There's probably very few companies that have that combo. It's like two jets of a plane. You can go a long distance with both of those jets firing on cylinders.
0: Well, we often hear about Amazon Web Services, but it isn't just, you don't call Amazon and say, hey, I want to be hooked up. Uh, But you would call VMware.
2: Yeah, and part of the reason is that we are the de facto standard in the on-premise world. All private uh, data centers, private clouds are run in VMware. And as Amazon looked at how they would build a bridge, sort of the highway into the cloud, they needed VMware. And I think, de facto, every company, as they think about their journey from maximizing on-premise, there's about 100 million workloads today in the on-premise world, a smaller number in the public cloud but growing really fast, that 100 million workloads, is not going away. And the 30, 40 million in the public cloud are growing, growing very fast. Both of these worlds are going to exist. And as you think about the things like Edge and IoT, the world of on premise is only going to grow. So we think a multi-cloud world is here to stay. The multi-server, multi-storage, multi-hardware kind of economy of the private cloud and Edge is here to stay. Who is that company that's going to build this de facto bridge to bridge both worlds? That's where we enter in with, I think, a very special story.
0: In some of your notes recently, I've, no- I've noticed that we, we, people talk about the, that maybe cloud spend had peaked. We're just talking about scratching the surface in the rest of the world.
2: We think we're only in the first or second inning. What's going on in the cloud? First off, as I mentioned, the private cloud is gonna to continue to grow. But in the multi-cloud world, you're gonna have three or four multi-scalers. The market shares are AWS. They're far ahead number one and then the Azure, Google, Alibaba, IBM. But then there's many country-specific clouds. If you go to Germany, Deutsche Telekom, and France, there's OVH because there's been country-specific regulations. We have 4,000 of those cloud providers that have built their stack on VMware. So why the big hyperscalers get a lot of attention, those multi-clouds exist. We think that those cloud providers are in their first or second inning of growth and we have got to build partnerships by which we can optimize the world for this multi-cloud world.
0: We do not talk enough about those, so thank you. We also have not talked enough because it was kind of uh, something that was in process. Dell and the industry. Can you talk? M- Michael Dell is a visionary. I have always loved him. The companies are now separated. Uh, some allowed Dell to go public after the buyout of D- the DMVT tracker. What's your relationship with Dell? And speak to what it means for the rest of the industry.
2: Michael Tell is an incredible business leader, and obviously his story is you know, well-documented and unparalleled. He's our chairman, and they own a controlling interest in VMware. But the beauty of this setup is now the economic interests of Dell and VMware are perfectly aligned. They are a public company. We're a public company. He has said, I think on your show on CNBC, that VMware will be independent, uh, right. and we will stay that way because we've got to serve customers who many of them have Dell EMC, but some of them have HP servers. And EMC storage or Dell servers and NetApp storage. And VMware is this Switzerland company that serves any hardware infrastructure on-premise, any cloud in the world. Uh, and what's good for VMware is good for Dell. So we think these economic interests will really align us. And the more important thing is our customers are aligned.
0: This is important because we've heard some very big deals in the last few days with uh, Satya Nadella and Microsoft. And it's, uh, you could be involved with those. Those are likely that you are involved in this.
2: Yeah, we are. In fact, in many cases, we've done certain things with Azure. They are number two in the public cloud space. We've designed our desktop virtualization run on Azure. We bought a really cool company called Cloud Health that monitors the resources on top of AWS and Azure. So we do think there's a multi-cloud world. What we started to do in the data center, what we've done with Amazon, is further ahead largely because Amazon's number one and we're hearing more customer appeal for that. But we do believe it's a multi-cloud world and we'll make appropriate investments for a multi-cloud world as as we progress.
0: How do you stay humble? The company's remarkably successful. I saw a terrific video on YouTube about you and talking about servant leadership. I think it's important that we talk about the things that you're thinking because you are a very big picture guy.
2: Well Jim, listen, I came as an immigrant to this country, 50 bucks in my pocket. So I grew up in sort of that Gandhian culture of India which is very humble. Uh, and listen, part of my narrative, that is part of what was on LinkedIn, I think you right. saw referring to that article, is I think the leaders that I admire the most, I put Satya Nadella in that, Jensen Huang, there are others, Shantana Narainen. These are immigrants like me who've come in with very little and they represent a leadership that's not top down. Right. As you're looking at a pyramid, I talk about in that video, imagine these are birds sitting on various different rungs. If you're a bird sitting in the lowest rung, you're looking up and you're just seeing crap flow down. That's the usual command and control culture. It's our job as C-level executives to invert that pyramid. And if you are an engineer or a sales rep at VMware, our job is to serve them, get the obstacles out of the way, or help a customer be successful. And it doesn't mean that you're a doormat. Right. A servant leader can be strong, can be a hard negotiator, but you approach it with humility.
0: Well, it's been a remarkable success story, and you have. And thank you for enlightening us. I do love that shirt because you are a fantastic cloud king, and this is how money is really made long term. I want to thank Sanjay he's VMware's Chief Operators, Operating Officer of Customer Operations, and I've got to tell you, you got to go to his video uh, because this servant leadership idea is something we're going to explore on our show. We have money's back in. It is time. It's over the light round. Christmas Wrap for The safe hands. And you know what? you don't And then the lighting round is over. Are you ready? skid day. Time for the light round. Christmas round. Start with Mike. Mike. Mike in Pennsylvania. Mike. Oh, Mr. Kramer. Thanks for taking my call. My pleasure. Uh, I believe I believe in wealth insurance. Besides bullion, I also own. Uh, Newmont Mining. I'd like to ask your opinion about Newmont Mining. Well, I don't like the deal as much. I mean, they're two state companies. The one you want to be in, and it's coming in, and it's good is Barrick Gold. Let's go. That's because I want Mark Bristow. I want to go to Cesar in California. Cesar. Hey Jim, how you doing? I am good. How about you, partner? Hey, I was wondering about U.S. silica. They've been great. Stay away, so not... San I think that oil's stuck at this level. I don't want to be there. If you really want to play that, buy Union Pacific. Okay, That's yes, they moved to San Propins. I need to go to Ed in New York. Ed. Oh yeah, Jim Kramer. Booyah, Ed. A pleasure talking to you. Same. Uh, my stock is Arena
1: Pharmaceutical. You had the CEO on approximately a year ago. And they got a—they're developing a lupus drug.
0: Yeah, didn't you is, think that was what impressive? Is your, what is your thought? Jim? Well, I thought that—you know—that's an unmet need. And I remember saying that it's a, going to be a great spec, but it's only a spec, please. Let's go to Jim in California. Jim. Hey, Jim. Hi. Booyah. Booyah. How you doing? I am good. How about you? Calling you from California by way of Orland, Pennsylvania, and Springfield High School. Get out of town, man! Go Spartan Springfield to the championship. Yeah, how about that? Let's get them. <laughs> yeah, um, you know I bought uh, and Eagles. Of course, I bought some CenturyLink at sixteen today. Oh, it's, really? It's down from. I mean, 21. it's pricing, It's cut. It's it's really pricing in a dividend cut at this point. I don't like the non uh You know, they've all been bad in the end. I like Verizon. I'm a very, very big traditionalist. I like ATT too. Why don't we go to uh, Mimi in Arizona? Mimi! Oh, I'm sorry, Marty in Ohio. Marty! How you doing, Jim? What? Fabulous. How about you? Okay. Hey, like you're in the morning, like you're doing in the day, but especially on Mad Money. Jim, what I'm calling on is D Dominion. Letter and- D. Okay, that stock is down a lot because it's merging with a South Carolina utility that a lot of people don't like. I think they're wrong. I think you buy it at five. And congratulations Ah, for what they've done in terms of uh, uh, export of LNG. They've been fabulous. Now I go to Mimi in Arizona. Mimi. Hey, Kramer. Thanks for taking my call. No problem. It's all about me, Mimi.
1: I'm looking for a less volatile long-term play investment. Looking at IBM, down 30%. I wanted your thoughts on the company. I'm with the you. Stuff.
0: I'm with you. It was a very good note out today, which said that, you know what, with a 5% yield, and if they get Whitehurst more, more involved with management, remember, they're buying Red Hat. It's going to be a good deal. I am with you on that. I need to go to Daniel, my brother in North Carolina. Daniel. Yes, sir. What's up? AJ, how are you doing? Booyah. Booyah. Uh, I want to ask a question about the stock of uh, ExxonMobil. with well, look, you know what? Exxon is Exxon Mobil has finally gotten cheap. It's an incredibly well-run company. It's never been wrong to buy it here at 4.5 uh, dividend uh, yield. So I'm with you. And I don't like to recommend the oils right now because they've been really bad. Let's go to Davey in New Jersey. Davey.
1: Yes, thank you for taking my call. I'm calling about Vodafone,
0: B-O-G. All right, this uh, thing okay. is just a house of pain, and the dividends not protecting you, well, I am pain. not going to let you go to move into that address. It's just not fair. Can we go to Brian in my home, old home state of Pennsylvania, please? Brian! Hey, how's it going, Jim? Couldn't be better. Thank you. How about you? No, I'm doing pretty good. Pretty
1: good. All right. I picked all my text. i up, I'm Mr. Mark, my business teacher. Right, I out there watching, and I'll uh, take it off. I was wondering what your thoughts are on the Nike stock.
0: I think Nike's doing incredibly well. There's been no real Chinese resistance. I think it's a good situation. I will continue to buy Nike. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is the conclusion of the Lightning Round.
1: The Lightning Round is sponsored by TD Ameritrade.
0: We've learned a lot about retail since Macy's slashed its forecast last week, and everybody extrapolated from those numbers to assume the whole group was in trouble. But there's a reason I always tell you to, uh, not to take your cue from the weakest player in the industry, and the department store business model is absolutely the weakest part of retail. Of course, it's an easy mistake to make, but Macy's cut numbers. CEO Jeff Gannett told us there simply wasn't good follow-through after Black Friday. He cited weaknesses in specific categories, women's sportswear, fashion jewelry, fashion watches, and cosmetics. Gave the impression of a broad-based slowdown in consumer spending. Now, to some extent, that's true. Consumer confidence eroded after Black Friday for a host of reasons. Everything from a slumping stock market to the government shutdown. But mostly, if you took your cue from Macy's, you were led astray. Consider that we've heard since then, well, how about yesterday? Lululemon some spectacular numbers, so we know that women are still buying sportswear. They're just not buying it from Macy's. Lulu had same store sales growth in the mid-teens, and that was against some tough comparisons last year. This tells me that Lulu's combination of strong online business and a terrific in-store experience is a winning formula. Now we know this was a there was a problem weakness in sleepwear. I don't know about that one. However, I do feel confident that the fashion watch category is being obliterated by the Apple Watch, which was supply-constrained for Christmas. And that's something that's been lost in all discussion about the iPhone slowdown. I think that the Apple, uh, that Apple's doing a lot to make the watch more fashion-forward. The Hermes collaboration is really worth following. It's selling incredibly well. In short, Apple's become a real force here, the largest watch by revenue in the world. I say underestimate it your own pearl, especially if Apple figures out how to handshake the medical profession, hence our epic idea to buy epic. Now, I don't really have a line on fashion jewelry, uh, but you know that this cosmetics business has suffered from the same malady that crushed the electronic hardware biz. It's called price discovery. If you go to Amazon or Ulta Beauty, you know you'll get the lowest prices for even the best makeup. The rest of the industry has pretty much caved to Ulta, which means they've caved to Amazon. Few companies can resist because prestige cosmetics are now sold in the same outlets in this, as the cheaper mass market stuff. That was unthinkable a few years ago. Certainly unthinkable in the world with Macy's. Put it all together, and it makes me think that Macy's has some unique issues that simply don't reflect what's going on in the rest of retail. I mean, just last week, PVH, the parent of Calvin Klein and Tommy Hilfiger, gave us a positive pre-announcement. These parents represent a ton of aisle space at Macy's, yet that wasn't enough to save the venerable department store chain. I still don't understand why Target and Kohl's stocks got killed, except that they reported non-blowout numbers on the same day that Macy's truly disappointed. (laughs) I guess people expected stupendous same store sales, and it just didn't happen. That said, I think Kohl's and Target are both being hurt by a resurgent Walmart, which is coming in under them in many cases. Watch this Walmart stock; I think it's going to continue to go higher. Still, these companies have reasons for being. Kohl's has unique brand pricing, uh, and remember we visited that—they've got the best brands for ch- for less. Target's got great house brands, and proprietary names. Plus, let's not forget the Kohl's guided up, not down, like Macy's. Why else might a big department store like Macy's be having trouble attracting customers? Maybe it's about fun. We keep hearing about the term experiential from retailers that are doing well, and we try to draw conclusions about what that means. I think it's about giving people a chance to have fun in a non-extravagant setting, which is why Dave & Buster's could deliver terrific sales last night. To me, the real takeaway from the Macy's madness is that you've got to go category by category. When you do that, you realize that retail isn't a losing ETF. It's a sector with both winners and losers. If you want to try to make money by picking stocks, you need to be able to tell the difference. So stick with Kramer. Netflix, no problem. I'll pay. Like I said, there's always a bull market more. I promise trying to find it just for you right here on Mad Money. I'm Jim Kramer, and I will see you tomorrow. 1980s New York. Five Titans
1: redefined the American dream. Helmsley, Boski, Gotti, Trump, Giuliani. Greed was good, and they wanted it all. Empires of New York, narrated by Paul Giamatti. Series premiere November 29th at 8 Eastern, only on CNBC-TV.